0: Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 417th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed saving webinar, just text seeds to 33444 to sign up or visit seedsavinghacked.org for more information. That's seeds to 33444 or visit seedsavinghacked.org. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is farming with an eye on the future. We're talking with Michael Foley about building a viable small farm economy. After 20 years in academia, Michael became a farmer. He started in Southern Maryland, then moved to Willits, California, where he, his wife, and oldest daughter operate Green Uprising Farm. He is the co-founder, board member, and teacher of the School of Adaptive Agriculture, formerly known as Grange Farm School, a farmer training and education program. Michael has helped create and manage a community kitchen and small farmers group, manage the local farmers market, and has served as both vice president of Mendocino County Farmers Market Association and president of Little Lake Grange. And with all that, he found time to write Farming for the Long Haul, published by our friends at Chelsea Green. Welcome to the show today, Michael. Are you ready to rock? I am. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: Well, there are a lot of blanks because (laughs) I'm an old guy, and the story really goes back to childhood, growing up on the outskirts of St. Louis in the 50s. I was always fascinated with farms and farmland, but already it was apparent that Farms and farmland around me were decaying, mm-hmm. going unused, something was going on. A big moment was visiting a ranch outside of Roundup, Montana, where my father had spent many memorable summers with my great-aunt and uncle. And telling myself, I was 12, I think, that I wanted to grow up and be a gentleman farmer.
0: <laughs> nice. Nice.
1: <laughs> i didn't know what that meant. I had something in mind, like Marx did when he said you know the the real life would be getting up in the morning, fishing, followed by reading, followed by farming, followed by writing, followed you know something like that. No idea all the work entailed in a real farming life, but I'm sort of living that kind of life right now, but instead of going into farming, I was a bookworm and went into academia where Eventually, I got a degree in political science when my first adventure in living in the country fell apart. I went back to grad school, got a degree in political science, which I started out thinking I was going to study uh, peasant revolution and peasant agriculture. Oh, wow. And did spend a lot of time doing that. I did research in Mexico and in El Salvador in the 80s and the 90s, did various other things as a political scientist, and then finally came around to thinking, I want out of academia, I want to farm, and coincidentally, a couple of my daughters were involved in one way or another with farming. My daughter, Allegra, had just spent two years in the horticulture program at Santa Cruz, the agroecology program. Oh, yeah, I know it. Program. Yep. So I took a six-month sabbatical. She came out to Maryland. I was teaching in D.C., and I had already started clearing a place and uh, grown some crops on it. And then that next year, she and I did a 30-person CSA. I was a complete newbie. I was learning from her. And, we, and it went from there. A couple years later, I retired, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. and came out to Willits, where another daughter was, on a piece of land we'd bought together, and that's Green Uprising Farm.
0: Wow! So interestingly, you and I have a bit of a shared path. When I was in the seventh grade, I wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans, and that was 1974. You know, early in my life, I realized that there was something really wrong with the way we were living and eating on the planet. Yeah. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There it is. And I, I have no idea where that came from. It's just it was there for me.
1: Yeah, well, it was certainly there for me, too. I don't know.
0: <laughs> well, yay. You know, and the, the cool thing for me is that it is informed, since a very young age, it's informed many of the things that I've done, and it's driven my life passion, and it sounds to me like for you, too.
1: Yeah, that's certainly true. It has, and yet, you know, this, this is Urban Farm, I spent a lot of time living in urban areas and in suburban areas and walking around neighborhoods looking at the traces of nature Mm -hmm. and occasional urban gardens. And just there was something that really resonated. But it wasn't until we moved out to the countryside to Willits that I realized how great a longing I had for being out in nature. Mm -hmm. I found that out with the first farming operation in southern Maryland that I just loved being outdoors during the day when everybody else was cooped up in an office, yep. including formerly myself. Mm-hmm. But um, that longing for being out there in touch with the land, just my hand in the dirt, seeing things grow, shaping an environment to the extent I could, that really came home when we moved here.
0: Yeah. Wow. So tell me just a little bit, because I want to get to your book, because this is this looks like an amazing book. But tell me a little bit about Green Uprising Farm. How big is it and what do you do there?
1: We are what I've started calling, without embarrassment, a micro farm. Mm, nice. We're, we're just five acres. Almost two and a half of it is a floodplain. And the only thing down there right now is a small 20 by 48 hoop house. Mm-hmm. The soil has been mostly wiped away by large storm events. Years ago, years and years and years ago, but still it's a threat because there's a creek down there. Right. And then the other two and a half or two acres is up higher, silty, sandy loam, former lake bed, on which we've got about a third of an acre of gardens. Um, And I am first and foremost a market gardener and an old orchard. And then we're putting in new trees. And my wife's working on a food forest, putting in various things gradually. In the two orchards we've got. She's also growing medicinal herbs. And then she has a very small herd of dairy goats.
0: Oh, nice.
1: So we do a lot of things. We do diversified market gardening and we do backyard dairy.
0: Yeah, wow. So Willits is in, is that Northern California?
1: It's Northern California, about two and a half hours north of the Bay Area. Up highway one hundred one on our way to the real deep woods, but already by the time you get to the Mendocino county line you 're in wooded hills, kind of rough country whole county, big county has only eighty nine thousand people in it, and we're scattered all over the place, wow, in some small you know small towns and even smaller local communities
0: yeah, well, and you know you mentioned this is the urban farm podcast, and I just want to address that. What I like to do is I like to find guests that are inspirational, uh, you, that started out in doing something else like you and followed their dream and, you know, started a farm like uh, you. So,
1: (laughs) Cool. This is a
0: great story. Uh, You know, I had one thought. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you know it, but I run a large urban farm fruit tree program here in Phoenix, teaching people how to successfully grow fruit trees in the desert. And I saw that on the website. Yeah, and yeah. when you when you talked about your two and a half acres that was a floodplain, my first thought was, "Oh my gosh, that would make a great orchard."
1: Yeah, you know the problem is that um, we recently tried to drill a well
0: because uh-huh. so we
1: didn't want to depend on the creek. And they got down twelve feet and hit blue clay, which went down another 200. Oh, wow. um, And they gave up. Mm -hmm. And the trees that were planted down there by the original homesteaders, all that's left are walnuts. They were originally English walnuts grafted onto black walnut stock. Right. In a lot of cases, the English walnut has died off Mm -hmm. because there's just not enough water down there. And the roots, you know, couldn't really penetrate that that clay. Yeah. And so we've got we've got black walnuts sprouting up, and the the English walnuts just don't produce much. Yeah. So we've got to do something else with it. We thought about olive trees. I don't know how they'd do.
0: Mm-hmm. You know? Well, that's a, that'd be a good experiment to do.
1: Yeah.
0: So. Well, let's talk about your book, Farming for the Long Haul: Resilience and the Lost Art of Agricultural Inventiveness. How did you how did you come about writing a book like this?
1: You know, part of it's a long story of my life, like uh-huh. being interested in agriculture and the anthropology of so-called primitive peoples for like 50 years. Mm-hmm. Doing the research I mentioned on peasant organizations and peasant agriculture in Mexico and El Salvador and around the world. All that was there, and I started teaching out of that store of stuff. But also, I got frustrated working with a lot of young people who wanted to be farmers, and some of whom were getting started, and organizations that wanted to support them. I got frustrated with the kind of business advice they were being given which presuppose that if you work hard enough and you're clever enough, you can make it in today's market. Hmm. And yeah, that's true. But that presupposes that today's market is static and that we're not coming to the end of oil. Right. Petroleum's estimate is it'll all be over by 2050. Are we ready for that? Are we even thinking about that? It presupposes that the topsoil is gonna to last. You know, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN says we have maybe sixty more harvests at this rate of soil erosion before it's all gone. That's sixty years. Yeah. And then there's climate change.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: are we thinking about these things? Are we planning? Are we so I put those two things together and what the book is, is about is it's a it's a plea first of all to think small. Secondly to take the lessons Of the agricultural, agricultures of the past, which have often been very long lived and sustainable. And when they made disasters, and they certainly did in some cases, they learned from them. They were resilient and adaptive and rebuilt agriculture. There's still wheat. Being exported from Syria, or there was before the civil war. Mm-hmm. One of the ancient bread baskets that was desertified partially and ruined by bad agricultural. But the Levant, that whole area, has recovered in certain ways—a more limited agriculture. But they've learned from their mistakes. We need to learn from their adaptations to be prepared for what we're facing.
0: Yeah. Well, in and
1: the immediate in distant future.
0: Yeah, you you sent me a, a you know a copy of the a PDF copy of the book and I'm sitting here looking at the uh, table of contents and I I had to laugh when I read the name of the first chapter Farming in the Ruins of the 20th Century. Tell me about that.
1: Well, as I said, I was beginning to see it in the early 50s as a child, mm-hmm. American farms were shutting down and they continued to shut down something millions of farmers went under in the last half of the 20th century. Soil erosion accelerated, slowed down briefly with some good government programs, and then accelerated again with some bad government programs. And most recently, we've gotten from the business press the news that the rate of bankruptcies in the big commodity farms of the upper Midwest has begun to skyrocket again mm-hmm. so farmers are going under 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 the soil's degraded, our health is degraded because of our commodity farming system and subsidized food that goes into junk food and junk meat and you know there's there's just so many pieces to that story. Wendell Berry, of course. Started the whole conversation with the unsettling of America yep. in nineteen
0: seventy six. Well, and I, I suspect that your book and looking down the chapter names is looking at thinking small, but also stepping away from the commodity markets. Because basically the commodity markets is corn, wheat, soy that really don't yeah. feed us, right?
1: Yeah. So we're looking to revitalize grain production in Mendocino County, for mm-hmm. example used to be a net exporter of grain, and now probably 100%, close, very close to 100% is grown here. A little project called the Mendocino Grain Project has begun to bring grain back, and there are some old farmers who still farm grain, but mostly for animal feed, mm-hmm. for raising their animals. That's the scale, selling it to local farmers, raising local animals, or selling it in local farmers' markets. That's the scale where commodities might make sense mm-hmm. <laughs> and also might be profitable. Yeah. Because if you're selling direct to customers, you know, you're much more likely to make a profit than right. you are trying to farm 10,000 acres and selling to the monopolies, to yeah. the Cargills, to the Archer Daniel Midlands.
0: You know, one of the things that's happened here in the desert Southwest is there was a grain called Sonoran white wheat that was rediscovered. And, you know, through a friend of mine, Bill McDormand, he, and a group of people resurrected it. And that's one of the big grains that is now grown here.
1: Is it? Oh, good.
0: Yeah. And it's used in breads and, you know, used in people food rather they're not, it's not being raised for animal food.
1: I use it in my own, artisan bread that i make four loaves of a week right i have a friend who does bread for farmer's market who also does a loaf with sonoran white wheat
0: oh yeah so you're actually using sonoran white wheat we are excellent you know it's a nice grain and it grows well and the cool thing that's happening here in the phoenix market is is that there are a few farmers that are actually raising it organically which gives us bales of straw that's organic straw
1: Yes. Isn't that an added benefit? That is huge. You know, one of the things I spend a lot of time on in the book is the whole farm, the importance of thinking of the bottom line in terms of all the things the farm gives back to you, Mm -hmm. including the wild part of the farm. Mm. But, yeah, that straw from a wheat crop, organic straw no less, is valuable. It's part of the bottom
0: line. Yeah, well, and yeah. you know, about 10 years ago, maybe it was 15 years ago, I started thinking about all of the chemicals that were being used at the stra- on the straws and alfalfas that uh-huh. I was using for mulch on my farm here. Yeah. Now, when when you say five acres as a micro farm, um, I have a third of an acre. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, it's even smaller of a micro farm, and, and I had to pay attention to the the products that I was bringing on site and how much chemicals was being used in them. So about 10, 12 years ago, I stopped using alfalfa and straw because of those chemicals. And uh, Jana over at pinnacle farms here in town, I get, I get organic straw from her and that we use. And that's a, you know, that way I'm not hauling in extra chemicals when I'm, you know, when I'm bringing that stuff in.
1: Yeah. It's a real concern.
0: It is. So chapter 3 is subsistence first. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, well, you know if we if we look back at agriculture through the centuries and across the world, it's rarely been dominated by markets. And generally where it's been dominated by markets, urban civilization in ancient Mesopotamia for example, mm-hmm. eventually it's destroyed the soil and the basis for the soil. <laughs> right. And and agriculturalists have been sometimes slaves, but, you know, generally exploited. But most people, most of the time, through the centuries, through the millennia, have farmed for their own subsistence and that of their communities. If they had a market, the market was really secondary to that. It was for trading specialty items. Right. It wasn't what their livelihoods depended upon. And I was looking for lessons from That vast history of agricultural experience, and that struck me as a central one. If we don't pay attention to our own subsistence and to what the farm can contribute to that, Mm -hmm. then in the long haul, when the market fails us, or our little constellation of markets fail us, then we're just going to go out of business like the millions of American farmers who have gone out of business over the last hundred years. Right. Instead of continuing to do what we love and what's so important, producing food for ourselves and for other people. So subsistence first.
0: Let's talk about what that means, subsistence. Basically, it's providing for our own needs.
1: Yes. So one thing we're, we're looking at here, and, and my wife Sarah is, is really pushing this forward, is looking at including high calorie crops in our mix of crops mm-hmm. not just salad mix which we're you know really well known for and and make good money on but also corn and beans and potatoes and squash eventually we have a neighbor who has developed a couple of kinds of quinoa especially ad- adapted to our area wow and even though quinoa gives me a stomach ache it it's a valuable supplement, you know, a valuable calorie crop. So we're focusing on those sorts of things, but also on, you know, a little bit of meat from our animals, but also part of subsistence first is being in a network, a community where we're trading things. Like, we trade milk for meat with a couple of different farms. Uh We don't count the cost. We just say, you know, how much milk do you want? And they say, well, how about this in trade? And they and they give us something right. every week or two. So that kind of strategy, thinking about how neighbors can support neighbors and you can support yourself and your neighbors, I think is key to farming for the long haul.
0: When one of the things that comes up for me when you say that is I have a vision of creating Phoenix. There's 4.4 million people in Phoenix creating Phoenix uh-huh. into a place that grows enough food for us here. And it, really, that's what we're talking about is uh, is uh, subsistence farming in all of our yards, I think, yes?
1: Yeah, and in all those vacant lots where downtown Phoenix used to be. I was just there and noticed by the airport, a mm-hmm. big old church was surrounded by dirt. empty lot yeah. and I, I dirt. I'd seen that before on trips through Phoenix. And yeah, there's a lot of possibility there.
0: Yeah. So what do you want people to take away from your book?
1: Oh, I certainly like that lesson that when we think about the bottom line, we ought to be thinking about more than profitability in today's markets. Mm -hmm. We ought to be thinking about providing for ourselves and our neighbors and building networks among ourselves so that we can help one another. So that's a big takeaway. I guess the other big takeaway is look, there are all kinds of techniques and inventions that farmers throughout the world, so called primitive people doing non modern agriculture, have come up with, some of which we still use, but a lot of which we don't pay attention to anymore. And delving back into those and pulling some of those back up and looking at them, you know, the whole terrace cultivation that was part of. Hohokam culture in your area at mountain pima and you know apache and you know all of that there are lessons there and there are things to bring back let's not just talk about swales like the permaculturists do let's look at all the terracing systems that are out there and see what's appropriate
0: thank you so much for diving in and putting this content out it's uh it looks like a great book and it's it's the place we need to keep our eye on we need to put our eye on the future, looking at the past, pulling up what we can and building a a new farm system for our planet.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the task. And that's probably the most important thing we could be doing. And it's great that you're doing it and doing the work you're doing.
0: Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And I, I say that all the time. I think the most important thing that we can be doing right now is figuring out where our food comes from and how to grow our own. Yeah. One of the interesting things that I noticed, I've been to Europe twice in the past decade. I was in Italy and Switzerland, and then I was in Croatia for two weeks about uh, four years ago. Oh, wow! And uh-huh. one of the things I noticed is that everybody had food growing in their yards. Yeah. Everybody had And in had.
1: Germany, they have pretty strict zoning laws. They have these land crisis, I think they're called, mm-hmm. circles around a town. But within that, there are urban gardens along the freeways or along mm-hmm. the train tracks that are obviously really well used and kept up.
0: Yet. So that's really my goal. My vision uh, I started about 10 years ago here in Phoenix is what, what if we had 10,000 urban farms in Phoenix? Aha! Uh-huh. That's where I'm heading with it.
1: The other thing that, that I make out of urban farming in the book, not so much the backyard farming, mm-hmm. but the community farming on empty lots mm-hmm. as a refreshing break from this notion that you've got to own your own little homestead in order to farm. Right. People in urban areas have just had to get over it (laughs) and work out ways to farm communally on the spaces that are available.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's, that's really refreshing and important, I think.
0: Oh, big time. Well, interestingly, when I was in Croatia in 2014, I was there on a work trip. We were talking with, I was with a group of people that was helping uh, this particular community of a hundred thousand people that we were visiting, helping them develop food infrastructure, the funny piece for me was they were asking us as experts to come and show them, but they were already doing it all. they already knew how to uh-huh. do it so, <laughs> so you know that was the funny piece, but interestingly enough, I met several times with a group of people that had started a community garden and they started it with a hundred plots and Apparently, those hundred plots went away in 24 hours, and they had a a waiting list of a hundred people. There's this culture there of, you know, we really want to grow our own food, and I think that's a big piece of what we're missing here in the United States.
1: Yeah, I I have noticed that uh, the Urban Gardening Project that one of our best local nonprofits runs in this area... Mm -hmm. Some of the most successful urban gardens are mainly Mexican-Americans, people who came out of a farming culture yeah. and, you know, came here for farm work but ended up in an urban setting, in apartment buildings and so on. And just, you know, they They, they want just, to grow their own food. They want to grow their own food. They They have the experience of it. They have the sense that it's an important thing to do, and they do it.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I do, one of, one of the, uh, the podcasts, this is what the podcasts are all about. This is what all of the work that I do here with my Fruit Tree program, and we do a, a yearly seed event here, and we do classes, really is about putting infrastructure in place so that when stuff hits the fan, we've got mm-hmm. the infrastructure here to back us up. Yeah. I can see your book being uh, one of the one of the guiding pieces in this conversation so thank you for that
1: well i hope it contributes
0: yeah (laughs) well from from what i can see it looks like it will so i'm going to shift on you and i'd like for you to talk about a time you failed how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it
1: well the one i've come up with um the one that strikes me is that first year in maryland with a 30 person csa I was a newbie, and Allegra was not such a newbie. She'd also worked on a CSA farm before Santa Cruz. But what what happened is we got hit by the beginning of a drought, a seven-year drought wow. that struck the southeast at that time. It started in August, and from August through September, there was absolutely no rain. Now, for me, from California, that's no surprise, but right. I wasn't from California. I was in Maryland, and... And I had relied on a good rain once a week, reliably. So we had no irrigation infrastructure, none whatsoever. Allegra knew something about drip tape from her experience at Santa Cruz, so we got a small amount of it, but it certainly wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. We had to you know, go to other farmers to fill those boxes for those two months. These were neighbors and families and friends who had sort of trusted us to provide food for their money. So we felt like we had to go and buy food from other farmers to get them their boxes. And that failure to anticipate, Uh that's the biggest one that I can think of. And to some extent, I think maybe most of us still do that, including us here. We get into routines of production that... Suppose certain markets, suppose certain weather conditions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and we're not adapting, we're not planning for the future, we're not thinking about it, and, you know, a big drought like that may be a rare event, but it's not unthinkable by any means.
0: Especially if you're in California and Arizona.
1: Yeah, especially if you're in California and Arizona, yeah. any place in the arid
0: west, yeah. So what do you consider your biggest success?
1: You know, I'm, I'm going to switch off of farming altogether and Even though it's struggling, I feel like helping to create this school, this farmer training program, Mm -hmm. and helping to bring together the young people that really have driven it forward and made it happen and that continue to be part of it, and that in increasing numbers, as young people go through this program, populate the farm scene in this county, I feel really proud to be part of that. Yeah. And yeah, and I again I think that's so important that young people are coming out of the woodwork and beginning to do this.
0: Yes. Oh, and it's it's wonderful. I, you know, I do tours here at the Urban Farm four or five times a year and there's a lot of boomers that show up on my tours. Like 80 80 plus percent of the people are, you know, older generations. Yeah. But there's this younger crew that's coming through that has me really excited. It gives me hope for our future.
1: Yeah. No, t- 11 years ago when we came here and got involved in community organizations and stuff, everybody was saying, Where are the young people? Where are the young people? And now the young people are here. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're in the leadership of the Grange. They're, you know, it's just, it's so exciting.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I would actually like to invite you to come back to the podcast and talk about your school. Because that's uh, another another really important piece of, uh-huh. you know, how do we get trained?
1: Yeah, I would love to do that. And maybe we could do it along with Ruthie King, who just stepped down as director, but came as a 25-year-old, became director very quickly, and mm-hmm. really drove the thing forward.
0: So nice. we can talk about that. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. So what drives you?
1: What drives me? I don't know. I mean, I you know i was raised with a sense of community community involvement by my father and community service by the jesuits at my high school mm-hmm. and but i also you know just in talking about farming i just love work i i love getting things done
0: mm-hmm. and
1: even if it's hard work and if it's tedious and sometimes discouraging still Getting through it and getting it done and shaping things, making things happen. And I guess that's true in the abstract level, too, on you know making a book happen or helping to make a community organization better, all those things yeah. just give me satisfaction. That <laughs> drives me.
0: Nice. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: That's really hard because I'm a reader <laughs> and I read a lot of stuff. But mm-hmm. since we're talking about farming... I want to recommend Elliot Coleman's The New Organic Grower* because Coleman, in contrast to my book, which speaks about a lot of other people's experience, uh-huh. he talks about his experience, but it's not just his experience, it's his experiments. It's his taking the knowledge of the past and the knowledge of the present and trying to figure things out, and he models it in the book. He, he walks you through the techniques and the tools and the infrastructure that he has experimented with and created over time mm-hmm. and gives you gives you lots of options and so it's i think it's a wonderful education in how to hack farming
0: yeah <laughs> So, and he was an extraordinary person to talk to. We actually interviewed him for episode 400 of the Urban Farm podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. If you want to hear, if you want to hear from Elliot Coleman, I got chills listening, having that interview with him. He was, uh, Uh you know, and he's he's getting up there in age, but man, he is all there. So, what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: If you get into gardening, if you get into farming, the central Most important thing that's easiest to neglect is observation. Oh, yes. You know, not just learning from other people's example, which is what I'm urging in the book, but observation on your own about what's going on with your plants, with your soil, with your climate. It's a hard one for somebody raised as an intellectual like me to <laughs> who's been estranged from the land for so long mm-hmm. to learn but it's so important and I you know I cultivate it every day when I when I can. So I think observation nice is, is the key and the core that follow and the care that follows from
0: that. Yeah, well and you know, the first premise and basic premise of permaculture is to go out and observe.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And that's what's so wonderful about permaculture. Also, holistic management. You know, Mm -hmm. the first premise is monitor, monitor, monitor. Try something, monitor, and then adjust. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And of course, that's the the same thing in permaculture, the same sort of of general advice.
0: Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Michael.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been fun.
0: You bet. How can our listeners get a hold of you?
1: Well, I'm launching a website called anothermadfarmer.net, after a poem by Wendell Berry that I love, mm-hmm. The Mad Farmer's Manifesto. So, anothermadfarmer.net. And I can give an email address if Perfect. people want to write. Perfect. That's fine. Foley, F-O-L-E-Y, dot M, as in Michael, W, as in William, at gmail.com.
0: Excellent. And I'm really excited for our listeners. We have a special bonus. Uh, Chelsea Green has offered us five copies of Farming for the Long Haul, and they need a new home. So if you email us at podcast at org with the subject line, I am in it for the long haul and provide us your name and mailing address. We're going to pick five random emails from the first 50 people that respond, and we'll send you that book. Thank you, Chelsea Green. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash long haul. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and every place you find podcasts. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Claiming your inner urban farmer is easy. Grow food, share it, and name your farm. Then let the world know you're an urban farmer while supporting our podcast. Pick up your urban farmer bling, hats, and t-shirts at imanurbanfarmer.com.